Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the, at the Gospel of St. Luke. We've been following St. Luke, chapter 16, 19 to 31. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And it takes us once again deep into the story, deep into the question of what is the relationship then between wealth and, and uh, salvation. And this one is particularly problematic. And so while it's one of the more interesting ones, it seems in some ways that the focus is is more on the consequences on the end of the par- on the end of the parable instead of instead of at the beginning of the parable because we're once again as i said dealing with the idea of wealth in in, Laz- in uh, luke and so it starts jesus said to the pharisees now we have to remember that jesus is addressing the pharisees in these because it isn't the lesson then is is transmitted through his response to the Pharisees to us. It's not a direct thing to us, um, because we have to say what is he saying to the Pharisees? What is he doing to the Pharisees? Why is he structuring this in this particular way? And the answer comes back to us saying, well, the Pharisees have raised an issue, and so. Jesus is going to respond to that issue in a parable. And uh, in that parable, he is going to respond to the Pharisees' questions and enlighten us as well. So, there was a rich man who used to dress in purple and fine linen and feast magnificently every day. And at his gate there lay a poor man called Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to fill himself with the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even came and licked his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. So we have the structure set up. There is a rich man. He's not necessarily, it's, it's, he's not necessarily portrayed as, as a wicked man at all. He simply has phenomenal amounts of wealth. And that there is a poor man named Lazarus who lays at his front door. And uh, the dogs lick Lazarus' sores. And uh, and the dogs are unclean animals, so it means it's just greater degradation. So Lazarus lives in complete degradation. Um, And says he longed to fill himself with the scraps that fell from the man's table. But it doesn't say that the man did not allow Lazarus to eat those things. It was very clear in the prodigal son that he needed permission to eat the pods that they were feeding the pigs. Here, there is no indication that such, uh, such a deprivation occurs. So maybe he did get the crumbs from the table, the leftovers, actually, basically is what it means. And, and maybe he didn't, but there's nothing that says that he didn't do that. Nevertheless, he's in a state of complete degradation and complete poverty. The rich man continues to live his life of exorbitant, magnificent luxury. And then the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, which is an an indication that Lazarus is somehow or other saved. 
One of the ways that we know that he's speaking with the Pharisees is because in both of these cases, as he's going to go on, that these people have experienced the resurrection. And the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees do not. So this is a Pharisaical response. And it says, but the rich man in his torment in Hades looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, Father Abraham, pity me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Isn't that interesting that here now one is in Hades and one is, we would say, in heaven. The one in hell still thinks that he is superior to Lazarus and that Lazarus should still do his bidding. Um, which means it's a mindset of the wealthy that separates them from the ordinary life of people and from the suffering of the poor. But Abraham says, my son, remember that during your lifetime good things came your way just as bad things came the way of Lazarus. Now he is being comforted here while you are in agony. But that is not all. Between us and you, a great gulf has been fixed to stop anyone, if he wanted to, crossing from our side to yours and to stop any crossing from your side to ours. In other words, this judgment is final. There is no traversing back and forth between heaven and hell. Wherever you happen to be, <clears throat> wherever the ultimate judgment lies, there you spend eternity. But the rich man replies, Father, I beg you then to send Lazarus to my father's house, since I have five brothers, to give them warning so that they do not come to this place of torment too. Another interesting dimension of this parable. The rich man, he still thinks that Lazarus is a servant, that Lazarus should, can do his bidding. But he is concerned about others. He's concerned about his brothers, and he wants to make sure that they don't make the same mistake that he makes of being impervious to the ordinary people of the world, being impervious to the needs of the poor. And then Abraham said something, and this actually, in many ways, is the whole crooks of the parable. They have Moses and the prophets, said Abraham. Let them listen to them. But ah no, Father Abraham, said the rich man, but if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Abraham said to him, if they will not listen either to Moses or to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. This is obviously directed toward the obstinacy of the Pharisees. For the Pharisees should know better than to adhere to the systems that they adhere to. They have legalized it and they have politicized it. And they have lost sight of the law and the prophets. And so that they therefore are living not in accordance with the, with the, with the covenant, but they are living in accordance with something of their own creation. And in doing that of their own creation, their minds are so fixed and so set that even when Jesus rises from the dead, they refuse to believe. And in fact, they try to bribe the guards at the tomb to say that his body was stolen. So even though someone did rise from the dead, the Pharisees were unwilling, unwilling to accept it, unwilling to take, understand its consequences, or even be vulnerable to its mission. Two things are therefore operate, operative in, in this parable. The one is the inherent danger of great wealth. 
we can look within our own society and we can see the inherent corruption that huge amounts of wealth brings. We can see the manipulation of ordinary people from people like Bezos and Gates and Soros and the rest of them. Um, how it's not a question of engaging and it's not a question therefore of looking for, for ways to relieve the sufferings of the ordinary people. In their cases, it's a way to manipulate and to control them. And, and this then becomes exactly what this rich man is doing with Lazarus. He thinks that he can control him even in death. He expects to be able to control him even in death. He thinks that it's possible for him to have Lazarus run errands for him. Certainly, he is concerned about his brother. He's not a totally wicked, evil man. But he is one who is so oblivious and so obtuse to the ordinary life of human beings, to the life of, of the poor, to the needs of people in their ordinary, everyday lives. Instead, he is a controlling and a manipulative person. He wants to make sure that the, that the riffraff, that the ordinary people, are able still to do his will, still be submissive to his command. We see it today, and we've seen it in every age, um, that this became kind of the abuse of monarchy, actually. And it was very only, only in the monarchs that stayed very close to the church that there was some kind of humanitarian spirit in that kind of st style of government. Um, and so it is part of the struggle of humanity from the very earliest days to the late. We can look at it, as I said, in terms of, of, the, of, the, of the ridiculously wealthy, the Gateses and Bezos and, and Soroses of our world and, and beyond them to many, many others in other parts of the world. But their relationship with society is a relationship of manipulation and power. There is no grasp that's apparently and no sense whatsoever of the ordinary needs of ordinary people and of the suffering of the really poor. That it is a base of power and it is not a base of human care and concern. And so, here we go. Then that the rich man ends up in Hades and Lazarus in paradise. Um, the Pharisees would be deeply offended by this because there is no indication that this rich man um, to whom they cater in the, in the powers of the Roman Empire um, did anything in violation of the law. And if he did nothing in violation of the law, then there is no indication then that he should be anywhere but justified and righteous and that he should be in heaven. But that's not the way that Jesus is telling the story. And he says that Abraham doesn't see it that way either. And so when the rich man then begins once again to desire to be served by the poor, to desire to be served by the ordinary, when, when all of that begins to happen, <clears throat> then Abraham begins to explain to him what the issue is and what the problem is. You've had everything and he had nothing. Now he has everything and you have nothing. But the rich man continues. He's not going to take that for a final answer. He's not used to taking a denial of his requests as a final solution, as a final answer. 
And so he says, but I beg you then to send Lazarus to my father's house. He doesn't say, you know, please help my, my brothers to be open to the law and the prophets. Help my brothers then to, in some way, shape, or form, begin to understand what it is that this covenant is all about, what it is this covenant is that we are supposed to be living. He doesn't say that. He says, send the poor, send this poor man to do my, my bidding for me. Send him to my brothers. And then, then comes the great conclusion. No, if you have created your own religion, which the Pharisees did, those Pharisees at least that adhered rigidly and, and absolutely and exclusively to the rabbinic law, which is a creation of humanity and not a given of the covenant, then nothing will convince them to the contrary, even if someone would rise from the dead. <clears throat> and so it's a carefully constructed and incredibly insightful and, cl and, and clever um, kind of parable because it ends up with predicting the pharisaical denial of the resurrection of Jesus and saying that such signs are futile to those who have made up their mind that they are not going to believe. And I think that brings us then very deeply into contemporary times because we find also this notion, this idea that somehow or other we should be in charge of the world in which we live. That somehow or other we should be the ones who are able to call the shots. And we find it, for instance, a lot of times um, when people will leave the church, and, uh, and, and I'm not saying that with a blanket condemnation, because there certainly are, are subjective encounters that somehow or other are unable to be overcome, the negativity of it is unable to be overcome simply because of the lack of understanding, lack of catechesis, and so forth. It's too complicated for humanity to figure out. But to come up with the conclusion then, well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in any organized religion, but I'm a spiritual person. What does that mean? That means I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to do it my way. And isn't that exactly what the rich man in the story is saying? That I'm, I'm not learning anything from what happened to me. I still want my own way. I still want what I want. And I want to be able to call the shots. He calls them politely, and he calls them with deep respect for Abraham. That's the notion, that's the essence, that's the kind of what comes to us out of this parable. But nevertheless, he wants to be in charge. He wants it to be his way. And that becomes kind of the fatal flaw of religion. When we cannot accept the flaws of humanity that exist within the church for the sake of the presence of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the promise and the sacramental life of Christ in the church and the church's role in our salvation, because it doesn't please us, or it doesn't satisfy us, or we are unforgiving, or we somehow or other um, expect more out of others than we are ever willing to give of ourselves. And so we withdraw then into this business of, well, then I'm going to do it my way. We find this 
you know, as part of the reason for the multiplication, of course, of denominations in Protestantism. And we're finding it also in many of the conflicts within the Catholic Church today. We have groups of people who want everything their way, wherever they fall on the spectrum. Um, from, you know, f from radical traditionalism, not from a traditional appreciation, understanding, and love of the Church and her story and her gifts, um, or into the radical progressives who see nothing of the, of the transcendent in their faith at all, and it's all simply anchored in a world, a small world, which they strive to control, call the shots, be in charge. Somewhere every, along that line, in the Catholic Church, we are experiencing the tensions with the rich man's dilemma. And I think that, too, that what we began to discover and we began to understand is the rich man had the capacity to be tremendously philanthropic, um, even at his own expense, even at having less than he wanted to have. And yet there is no indication that he ever took that opportunity to share his wealth with others. There is also the idea that the, the poor man was the forgotten, the neglected, the one that nobody cared about, the one that, yeah, maybe he could eat the leftovers at the table and maybe he could sleep at the doorstep of the rich man. But any kind of real humanizing relationship between the rich and the radically poor doesn't exist in this parable. There are totally different spheres of the world. We have to understand and realize that in our society, despite our troubles and our difficulties, and despite the contemporary um, economic crisis that we live in, we live a remarkably comfortable life, remarkably on the whole. Certainly we have the homeless, and certainly we have those who, who are not tended to and cared to for by the society in which we live. Certainly there is that. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, do we just say, well, as long as it doesn't impact me, as long as it doesn't bother me, as long as, you know, as long as I, I can live my life the way I want to, everything is okay with me. That's what the rich man said. We, in a sense, in comparison with other ages, times, and places, are rich people. Um, and, it would, and that notwithstanding that dimension of our society, which is in need and which is in want and which we all know exists. And that we all have an obligation to reach out to in our charity and in, 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 in not just in charity, but in the sense of justice itself, of, of tending to the needs of other human beings, because that's what they deserve from us who are believers and for us who have the comforts of modern life. That we then must come to understand that this rich man is a sign for us that, uh, that aside from the abusiveness of the, uh, of the extraordinarily wealthy and, and, their, and their condescending relationship with the society in which they live, their manipulative relationship, their, their, their cynical relationship, um, their, their cavalier attitudes toward those in great need, all of those things are part of what this is about, part of what this parable is about. And it means, actually, that there is a deep moral question about the possession of so much wealth 
that goes simply to feed the desires and the ideologies of the very wealthy and does not take into account the ordinariness of human persons and the poverty that exists within every society, no matter how wealthy or how, um, how uh, luxurious it might be. But it also, as we've said before, money is not just money in Luke's Gospel. Money also is a sign of something else. It's a sign of alienated affections from God. And it can manifest itself and show itself in abuse of many things, not just of wealth itself, but abuse of sex, of money, of, of drugs, of alcohol, of uh, power, of all those kinds. Whatever becomes more important to us than salvation in Jesus Christ, whatever that is, and this has been the message of Jesus in the last several Gospels that we've looked at, nothing comes before the Lord. Nothing. And when, in fact, the Lord becomes an inconvenience and we get rid of him in our lives, whether we are of the global elite or whether we are simply extraordinarily comfortable people in our modern society, that we ourselves run the risk of placing that life that we enjoy, that life that we want, that life that we strive for, we believe somehow or other that that takes precedence over our understanding, over our acceptance of the person of Jesus Christ and the demands of what it means to believe in him. For we are not allowed, if we believe in Jesus Christ, to be indifferent to our neighbor. We are not allowed, therefore, to, as the, as the Levite and the priest were, to pass by the beaten man alongside the road. We are not allowed to do those things because those things are contrary to the spirit and the Lord of, and the law of Jesus Christ. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's what begins now. Let's apply that. Love the Lord your God above all things. Love your neighbor as yourself. And let's apply that then to this parable. And what do we see? Love the Lord your God above all things. Love your neighbor as yourself. There was no equity in relationship between Lazarus and, and between Lazarus and the rich man. And there was no indication that there was any consciousness within the rich man of his obligation to God. That there was, in fact, simply extraordinary consumption and indifference to the poor. And that's a risk that we run in the age that we live in. We should be very grateful that we're not in destitution. We should be very grateful that we're not in great want. We should be very grateful for the kind of life that for having been the kind of life we've been able to have in this country, for instance, or even in the Western world for that matter. We should be very grateful for that. But it should also bring us humility and a sense of real dependence on God. It should not let us, therefore, be puffed up with pride. It should not let us be the ones who proclaim, um, you know, that to the world that, well, because we are a more powerful or wealthier country, we're better than everybody else. We have every right to look after the well-being of our nation, and we have every right to respect international boundaries and borders. Um, it's impossible without tyranny to guard, to govern, huge and vast numbers of people. 
that, uh, that, that we ourselves are experiencing that as the petty tyranny of our own modern age begins to manifest itself. And, and the, the twisting and, and of, of, the, of the whole notion of what it means, you know, to be a decent country, to be a decent community of people. All of those things get skewed uh, in our attempt to govern vast numbers of people. And we certainly have um, received a, a remarkable governmental structure from those who created the country, raised it in the first place. But we also see the stresses and the strains of that kind of government. And we also began to understand its limitations and also began to understand then too that we have to continue to expand our understanding of what it means as the numbers of people expand so that we do not in ourselves become the, the divas, the rich men, and that we do not ever in any way reject the idea of the poor. We're seeing, for instance, in this country, all sorts of things. We see, for instance, there's a lack of mental health facilities, and that puts the homeless into our streets. We see there's a lack of desire to, to stay away from, from the narcotics that destroy the human mind and the human person. And, and, and so we find those people also on the streets who have, who have ceased in some way, shape, or form to, in this society, to retain the semblances of their own humanity. We, we see this all along, and we have the obligation, there can be a legitimate difference in people's perspective as to how we address these things and how we deal with these things. Um, for some, that might seem to be a more disciplinary mode, to others a more, a more lenient kind of mode, and that's legitimate. But the question is, are we seeking then to help them, no matter how different our approaches might be, or are we simply organizing and developing positions and points of power? And are we doing it in a manipulative sort of way, or are we doing it for the sake of the other? That becomes critical and crucial for us. The point is that once we create our own world and, re and refuse in a way to live in the world that the living God has given us with all of our covenant and with all of the understanding and the depth and the knowledge summed up in the love of God and neighbor, in all of that then, if we do not accept that, if we do not appreciate that, if we are not in some way submissive to the will of God, then we would refuse to believe, even if someone should rise from the dead. For we will not, in those conditions, allow our minds to be changed by reality, by facts, by experience. For we have set our jaw as it is, and we have set it in a way that leads only to darkness. But if, in fact, we accept the resurrection, and if, in fact, we love the Lord and our neighbor, we come beyond and we transcend those, those multiple traps within modern society that would encase us and enclose us in a dark world that has no good end and that leads to no good life for others. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. 
Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who bad?